Thank you for tuning in to the sermon webcast of Living Savior. We are one church serving in two locations, Asheville and Hendersonville, North Carolina. For more information, go to lsavior.org. What does the world have plenty of, yet struggle to manage? A simple example would be something like water. Over 70% of the surface of the earth is covered in water. Yes, about 95 plus percent is the oceans and seawater. Harder to do something with that in comparison to fresh water. But still, plenty of water and how do we manage it? Well, when you see the pollution of freshwater streams and lakes going up and up and up, you see island-sized mounds of trash floating around in the oceans, People who use water frivolously in one part of the world and other people who are even dying of thirst. I know it's more complicated than that, but suffice it to say that just because you have a lot of something does not necessarily mean that you know how to manage it. Another example would be wealth. We are among the wealthiest people of all time. Even when you consider not just the spectrum of history, but the pie chart of the world today. But consider how many people in our society, very much like us, are drowning in debt or way overspending their means. Consider, consider the top percent of the top percent of the top percent who take their millions and billions and they need to hire someone to manage it precisely because they cannot. Just because you have a lot of something doesn't mean you know how to manage it. Consider communication and information. Today, this very moment is yet another step in this era known as the age of information. It is at our fingertips, all of it, more so than ever before, and tomorrow will be yet another new record. The ways that we can communicate is so easy, more easy than ever before. And yet with the bombardment of notifications and bings and emails and demands and people calling, is it, is it taking the heavy workload, already heavy workload, and making it easier and better? You take information, is it making people more peaceful? The 24-hour news cycle, is it actually working to help people be a little bit more at peace? You know, Just throw more information at it, that'll fix it. <laughs> just because you have a lot of something doesn't necessarily mean you know how to manage it. So when you think of all of the things that the world does not have a lot of, does not have in spades, plenty of, you would think at or near the top of the list is the thing we're talking about today, right? Love, like we're in a drought, like we are bankrupt. When you look at the world economy on the spectrum of relational reaction, love is not necessarily the thing that we have so much of and we're really just struggling to manage it. Although today, through the eyes of this lesson that's quite familiar, I'm, I'm assuming, 1 Corinthians 13, I, I would like you to consider the, the flip side of that, that maybe you consider all of the voices and the heads and the pundits that are telling you that we don't have enough love and maybe check the source. And as you do, I am going to pose to you that love is actually something that we have plenty of. The question is, do we know how to manage it? The first time you heard this, or maybe even the last time you heard these words, I'm going to go ahead and bet it was a wedding. You know, the pretty groom, the pretty bride, they're ready, to, and then the guy with soft, whimsical, baritone voice starts reading these, love is patient, love is kind, and everyone tilts their head and says, aw, but Paul, when he is inspired to write these words, is not talking about a wedding when we probably commonly hear these words. He's actually talking about unity in, an otherwise, in a church that was otherwise divided. 
In the previous chapter, he's identifying that although there is a plethora of diversity, to be redundant, of the gifts that God has given you, dear Corinthian Greek Christians, you're, you're allowing the diversity to, to create disunity. You're allowing this plethora of gifts to drive you farther apart from one another instead of closer together. And so how in all the world do you get a bunch of people with different backgrounds and preferences and likes and dislikes and agendas, et cetera, et cetera? How do you get all those people to come together? Well, Paul kind of anticipates that question to his first listeners as well as to us when right in between chapters 12 and 13, he says, now you want to know? You want to know how? I will show you the most excellent way. You, you want to know how you come together, how, how you actually can have something that you already have in spades, but you know how to manage it? I will show you the most excellent way. And then he launches into these words. Now, as you read these words, does it make you personally tilt your head, look at the world, and look at yourself and say, aw, warm fuzzies all over. Did you pause and actually think about what you just heard? If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, if I have the gift of prophecy, can move mountains, if I give all I possess, that I would even suffer hardship so much so that I could boast. You see, he, he states a good thing, and then he even elevates it, and then he says, you know what, even if you have this thing that is, that is higher than your standard, whatever that would be, but you have love, what's the mathematical equation at the end? Zero. The one right in the middle, it's harder than you even read it. It's harsher. It's I am a nothing. It's a fat zero. So it's not even just the standards and the success and the titles at the end of your name and your salary and the amount of people who like you and what others say about you and how many friends you have. It's not even the worldly version of success. He's talking about Christian things to this Christian congregation of gifted people. So you, yes, you're a Christian, with your Christian lens, think of the most Christian-y things that you can do for yourself and others. And if you do that... And even if you'd have it better and do it better, then you might even think, and others might say, wow, like tongues of men and of angels. But there's no love, then, then what is it? It's a, it's a giant fat zero. So the thing that would cause you to be so happy about yourself, I mean, analyze the why. Do we even know how to understand the thing that we can't understand. I know that's a weird way of saying it, but that's what Paul's trying to do. Do, do you get it, dear Christians, that we don't even really understand the necessity of love when you think of the most valuable things in your Christian life, and yet if the motive behind it and if the basis for it is not love, it matters this much. It's nothing. And if that's not intimidating, then he go, gets into not just the necessity of love, but the next paragraph is the, the character or the nature of love. Did you, did you pay attention to how many times he'd said not just what love is, but love is not? And you kind of know why, right? When you live in this world, it's pretty easy to look around and not just say what love is, but what love is not. You, like, oh yeah, that, yeah, that's definitely not love. You're like, I know it when I see it, that. And, that. and the world is full of examples. You don't have to look for longer than a millisecond to recognize, yeah, that, nope, that, that's not love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It, is, it boasts. It is not proud. It is not self-seeking. It keeps no record of wrongs, etc. But I'd like you to play a test. If you're not already kind of feeling the heavy burden of this text, which you probably are. Maybe just play this game with me. Walk through verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. I would argue there are two types of people right at that point. Pause. There are the type of people who recognize this is not me. And then there's another type, maybe even a type of the sinful nature that quite easily, instead of analyzing self, looks automatically at others. Ah, proud. Oh, I can think of that. Envy. Ooh, I can think. Kind. Ooh, I, I can think of that. I can think of a person who doesn't do that. And here's the test. Right there you fail because what does he then go on to say in verse 5? The moment that I would try to find validation in how I compare with others in the love test, so to speak, verse 5, it does not dishonor others. Which, which you can easily just do in verse 4. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So as you look around in the world and you consider what the world has plenty of, you might say, up to this point, I still don't agree with you that love is something that you have plenty of. Well, absolutely. When you understand love is something that we need to find in the world. But again, consider the source. We live in a world that is telling us to love in this way, not that way. To do this, not that. If you do this, you're canceled. If you're, you don't fit these criteria and walk this hopscotch steps and fit in this box, then you're this or you're that label. If you don't do these things and love in this way, then you're canceled. You're either this on this side of the aisle or that side of the aisle. We live in a more divided and disjointed society than arguably ever before. Certainly it's promoted that way and shared with us that way. And so you and I might look at the world and say, if this is what love is and what love is not, we are not seeing plenty of it in the world. And might I also add, do we see this in ourselves? So maybe, in order to get where, to the point where I'm posing today, you and I can say to ourselves, maybe it's okay that these words rest heavily, that these aren't the awe warm fuzzies. And in that moment, you realize that these words are not the boxes that you check so that you can meet the standards of God. Clearly. Clearly. But God wants us in that moment not to start to think that we can check boxes, but to see that he and only he can fulfill and be what we never could be for him. See, there's another test you can do with these words. Every single place where you find love, you can take one person and put him in there. Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not self-seeking. You get to look at these words and hear the things that Jesus said in our gospel reading. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And who is the only one who did that completely? The one who says those words, which is very instructive. Jesus does not tell you to do something that he is not already fully accomplishing for you and also gives to you in the gospel. Jesus does not expect you to become what he does not already fully be for you according to his grace. 
and does not also give to you in the gospel the message of God's free and faithful love. Jesus does not look at you and tell you to do all of these things so that you would prove to be wrong. Jesus points you to himself, who's the only one who could do all of these things, so that by his life and death for you and rising from the grave, he would prove you to be right before God. Not because of you and me, but because of his never-failing, always and forever, love. God does not give you these words so that it would be this ominous cloud over your head and drive you to despair and discouragement farther away in distance, but to point out to you that he and only he by his love in Christ and by calling you through the gospel brings you close to him as his own dear child. Jesus is patient for you and patient with you and me. Consider the amount of time that he waited before he would bring us to his family. Jesus is kind. Is there a measure to that grace that he showed to you by laying down his life for us all? Jesus does not envy. What does he have to envy when he leaves heaven so that he would gain us? He's not self-seeking. Is there any greater show of selflessness than the one who sacrificed himself for those of us who by nature don't even want him? Is there ever an eternal aspect to love that could be greater than the one who rose from the dead and therefore proves that the one who says these things can be the only one who gives these things? The gifts of God's love for you. Forgiveness, joy, and peace that never, ever fails. That's the beauty of having post-Easter eyes, right? You get to look back at Jesus and see all of the things that he accomplished and said and then he exercised all of those things with selfless love to win for us something that the world never can. You know, the world that demands love in all of these various ways that never corroborate. Only Jesus and the paradigm of selfless love just so happens not just to be the paradigm, it happens to be the prescription that saves. Love never fails. When you consider the next paragraph, the third one that is, there's this eternal aspect to it that we can hardly comprehend. The, the never fails aspect just so happens to be the one thing, therefore, that makes God's kind of love different than the rest of the world. And when you view it that way, that it is God's love for us in Christ, then there's nothing that can ever lead that to be bankrupt. There's nothing that can ever create a drought. There's no possible way then for us when we understand this selfless type of love to others to think that, oh man, we, dear Christians, we don't have enough love in this world. No, actually, it's, it's forever. It never fails and it comes from God and it, and it won't ever quit. It always hopes, always perseveres and since it's from God and in Christ to us, then, then we do have plenty of it in this way. The question then is, since we have plenty of this love from God in Christ to us, do we know how to manage it? 
You see, the, the, the challenge with probably every way of demonstrating this type of love, this brand that God gives us, the only one that lasts, is that we're always afraid to lose something, right? Like if you're going to be patient and kind and selfless and never ending envy and never boast and all of these things, well, what's always the fear that creeps into our human brains? It's that we're going to lose something. We're, someone else is going to get ahead. We're going to be vulnerable. They're going to take advantage of us. They're going to stomp on us. They're going to twist something. They're going to stab us in the back. We, we, we don't do these things to a great degree. Yes, we're sinful, but it's deeper than that. It's because we're, we're going to lose something. But you can't lose when the ultimate victory is already won. You can't lose when you love this way because God's love in Christ led to victory over the grave and eternity. It never fails. Therefore, we literally can't lose. So, dear Christian, how do you then manage this plentiful love that literally will never run out? By living the way that Jesus lived for you. By selflessly loving others the way that Jesus selflessly lived for and loved you. I'll give you an example. There's this old cranky lady who lived in rural Midwest, and she was a piano teacher, and some middle school boys would come by for lessons, and she was just cranky, the story goes. I heard the story in college, and I remember the professor telling it to this day. He didn't say whether he was one of the piano students. I kind of think that he was, but he never admitted that. He, he would go to a, they would go to these piano lessons and she would sometimes just turn on Beethoven and she would turn it up while they're doing their lesson because she was so cranky at all the mistakes that they were making. She never really said anything when they would come in. They would say hello and she would just tell them to sit down and start with their practice, kind of give them homework and send them on their way. They, they still kind of have abided and then one year she got really sick and her students in this rural town in the Midwest would come by and say hi. No, they wouldn't because she's sick and they were gone and that was it. But one of her students who had grown old was kind of a fix-it man and he would stop by every week to check on her. She would make this kind of gross turkey, mashed potatoes, greasy, gravy type of dish every week and he didn't like any of those things. But she hated wasting. So he would sit there and enjoy the meal with her and help finish it because waste not, want not, she would always say. And then he would go on his way. He didn't like any of it. Not a flashy, showy thing. And when asked later why he did it, he simply said one thing. She had nobody. And she didn't like to throw things away. That's it. Love is patient. Love is kind does not envy, does not boast, is not proud, is not self-seeking. He, he just loved her. It wasn't a big showy thing. Hardly anybody knew about it until many years later, and still many people didn't. And might I add that that's exactly what Jesus did for you. It didn't look like a showy thing when he was patient, living for you. It didn't look like much at all. It was ugly when he was kind and dying for you. It didn't look like much as most of his disciples doubted his rising from the grave, but he was rising for, for you. And so although it doesn't look flashy, then might I also add that this is exactly what God employs you and me to do, to manage this boundless eternal love in very simple ways. It's a it's a conversation with maybe one person who drives you nuts. But you're patient because why not? You have all the patience that God has given you in Christ and he promises to help you. You can be kind to maybe one person 
who's giving you all the reasons not to be kind. (laughs) But why not? Because God has been so gracious to you. There's no reason to envy or boast. What else? What is there to gain in this world when you and I have already been given eternity? And in this way, my friends, you and I recognize that we not only have a love that we have plenty of, but according to the gospel, God even motivates us and gives us the power supply and guidance to manage it and carry that out. And this, my friends, is the most excellent way. God grant that to us all. Amen.